0: you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone.
1: I'd like to start by just going back in time to season one of the Twilight Zone and rod Serling would always introduce it in this way There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. So we've moved beyond that open narration now, but in a lot of ways, it's my favorite one, the most definitive one. It's the one that tells us where the Twilight Zone exists between science, what we know, what we can prove, the summit of man's knowledge, and superstition, what we fear, what we believe or suspect, despite what we know, the pit of man's fears. For me, for a long time, the Twilight Zone did actually exist in a way between light and shadow, waiting up until two o'clock in the morning to catch whatever episode was on, alone in the night, half asleep, The episodes took on a dreamlike quality and I would often find that when I watched them again in daytime hours, they weren't quite how I'd remembered them because my mind wasn't in that same place. Perhaps the best illustration of this dreamlike state can be found in Arlen Schumer's book, Visions from the Twilight Zone. It's a collection of images and quotes from the show presented through the artistic lens of Arlen Schumer. And it really beautifully recreates that feeling of a half remembered viewing of an episode where you remember images, you remember certain lines, but you can't remember if you actually saw them or if you dreamed them. Now I wrote a review of that book once where I said as much and Arlen Schumer happened upon it and wrote a very kind comment where he said, that's exactly what he was going for with the book and he paid the review his highest compliments. So this perception of the Twilight Zone as this half dreamed of place isn't just my observation and I feel it was built into the show from the beginning, but then reinforced by our own viewing experiences of it. It's a view that a lot of people share, but some episodes play more into that view than others eye of the beholder comes to mind for me it presents a world with a slightly artificial quality to it we don't see the people's faces but it carries us along stimulating the senses in different ways until it descends into a nightmare so while rod serling in collaboration with some very talented directors could take us to that place in episodes that Weren't even necessarily about dreams themselves. It was another of the Twilight Zone's most celebrated writers that liked to tackle the theme straight on. Charles Beaumont took us there in the episode Perchance to Dream, and now he's going to do it again in tonight's episode Shadow Play.
2: Not again! I won't die again! You can't make me die again! Please, please, please. Tell a Mr. District Attorney, that this isn't real. Make him understand they're only a dream I'm having. You fools! You kill me, you'll die! You believe me? Make him believe me. Tell the District Attorney he's prosecuted himself and everybody in this building and everybody in the world. Tell him, Mr. Carson, before it's too late. Tell him! Tell him!
0: Adam Grant, a nondescript kind of man found guilty of murder and sentenced to the electric chair. Like every other criminal caught in the wheels of justice, he's scared, right down to the marrow of his bones. But it isn't prison that scares him, the long, silent nights of waiting, the slow walk to the little room, or even death itself. It's something else that holds Adam Grant in the hot, sweaty grip of fear. Something worse than any punishment this world has to offer. Something found only in... The Twilight Zone.
1: First broadcast on May 5th, 1961. Written by Charles Beaumont and directed by John Brahm. I have to comment on the pre-narration sequence in full because already it feels like this episode is something quite special. As the opening credits end and the shot pans down as usual, The opening shot of the episode also pans down into darkness to the face of Adam Grant, played by Dennis Weaver. It's the only thing we can see in the dark. But as the camera pans out, a man sitting next to him is also illuminated. He says, here they come. And as the camera continues to pan out, the rest of the room is illuminated and we see that we're in a courtroom. And the jury are sitting down now the ceiling in the courtroom is so high that the walls might just go on forever and the whole room just has that slight artificial feel about it now granted this could just be the way the set is put together but a line that adam grant says later on makes me think otherwise but we'll get there and adam grant himself he sits distracted He's about to hear whether he's going to be found guilty of murder. It should have his full attention, but he doesn't seem to care. He's distracted, his attention is elsewhere. And when he does come to his senses and realise where he is, what he says makes no sense. You're not going to kill me again, as he gets dragged from the courtroom. And when he does, who should be standing on the witness stand next to him? But Rod Serling. I think this opening scene is absolute perfection. A really gripping opening from the mood of the location to the ranting of Adam Grant to the opening narration with Rod Serling being right there in the scene. And as narrations go, it's short, it doesn't give too much away, and it leaves us wondering, what is this man so scared of that can be worse than prison and the electric chair?
3: Lay over of that thing, will you? I'm sorry, Grant. I didn't know I was battling you, It's, it's alright, Coolidge. It's my fault. Eh? I got you out of a bad movie I saw once. Just like everything else in this corny dream.
1: I like the matter of fact way that Weaver delivers these lines and how he describes that he got his harmonica playing inmate friend from a bad movie that he saw once. I imagine if you made this today, you could really go to town with presenting each character as some sort of movie cliche because we've built up even more since then. But I think Beaumont and Bram pitch it just right here. There are echoes of those prison movie cliches, the harmonica playing inmate, the one losing his mind and the elder statesman kind of prisoner and it's here that we get the iconic side profile shot of Dennis Weaver sat in his cell massaging his right temple with his hand then he delivers that speech I'll
3: tell you what it's like You walk out of your cell past two great doors 78 steps to the final door, it's painted green There's a guard that opens the door for you and you go into a room. It's tan. It's all tan. There's nothing in it except one chair. It's like a chair you used to sit in when you were a kid. It's hard and solid. Huh? Cut it out, cut it out. They strap your arms and legs. Then they attach the electrodes. Funny. They always feel cold to the touch at first.
4: Oh, Grant, you talk like you've been through it already.
3: <laughs> then they drop the mask. It's musty. It smells like an old sofa. And then you wait. Every muscle tense. Straining. Any second. Any second. And you can almost hear it. They a switch.
1: So after that great speech, the episode kind of switches gears for a moment. We saw Paul Carson earlier on in the courtroom. It's not really explicit what his job is, but I think he's some kind of news editor. And he turns up at his friend, Henry Ritchie's house, who he calls Hank. Now Hank is the district attorney, he has the power to stop Adam Grant's execution but of course he has to have good reason to. Now there's something very interesting about this scene that's going to lead us off on a bit of a tangent so I'll come back to it in a moment after we meet our main players. Now I won't go too much into their stories, they are very typical working actors of the day, the usual kind of credits to their names. But they're also Twilight Zone regulars in their own way. Carol, played by Anne Barton, has already been in the Twilight Zone playing Myra Brand in The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. The drunk Paul Carson is played by Wright King and he has a couple of Rod Sailing connections going forward. He'll appear in the episode of Late I Think of Cliffordville but then in 1968 he'll appear as Dr. Galen in Planet of the Apes. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. documents a quote by Wright King, where he says, I'm ashamed to admit that I found shadow play obscure. I managed to sort out the character's lines of thought in my two or three scenes well enough to satisfy director John Brahm. I've seen the show two times and yet to make it out, truly a first for me. I always enjoyed working with my good friends, Dennis Weaver, Harry Towns, and Anne Barton, who I worked with many times. So if he'd only seen it a couple of times, perhaps that was quite early on because Stuart T. Stanyard caught up with him later on in life in his book, Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone. And his impressions are a little softer, he's a little more appreciative of the Twilight Zone, or at least he understands it a bit more. Now, Stanyard asks him the question that he asks everyone in the book, and of course you would ask this question. He asks, what were your impressions of Rod Serling? And Wright King answered, Rod Serling was an exciting man. I knew him, I can't think exactly where, early on somewhere in New York, and the last time I saw him was in Los Angeles, in the airport, and he always remembered you. We talked just briefly, he was going his way, I was going mine, but he was just a wonderful always up kind of guy, very interested and interesting. He was vital, very substantial and very attractive kind of guy. I'm always amazed when they say he was short, well he was, but you didn't get that, he was a very straight guy, very straightforward. And then Stanyard asks him, what do you think of the show today? and he says today i'm so happily surprised there are so many things i did and so many phrases and the twilight zone is right up there it was done with segments that are going to bend your mind and it's done concisely that was good writing and it was directed well and it went well in those days i was spoiled i worked with a lot of good writers there was a guy named john brahm he was a very famous director He directed the movie Fury, which got him a lot of notoriety. He was a nice guy, he wanted me to be drunk in Shadowplay. And I never played drunk before. And I had to show up at Harry Towns and Ann Barton's house drunk. I had never played drunk on stage before. And that was a little bit of a problem for me. I tried out a couple of things and John said, What you're doing is just right. And it worked out. So I guess he finally came around. And the third part of this scene is Harry Towns playing Henry Ritchie. He has a quite distinctive, slightly craggy face. And it's nice to see him play a completely different character to when he played Arch Hammer in the earlier Twilight Zone that he appeared in, The Four of Us Are Dying. He would go on to appear in the story Lindemann's Catch in Night Gallery. And he too would appear... In the Planet of the Apes universe, but this time in the TV series where he played Dr. Malthus in the episode The Interrogation. So, what is it that I said was going to be interesting about this scene? Well, I enjoy it, I like the actors, I like what they do, and that's all fine. But this story, Play, is actually based on a short story written by Charles Beaumont called Trimeray which I believe is the German for daydream. And that story pretty much starts like this.
4: I'm a poor lost traveler seeking food and lodging for the night. You're loaded. Hank, I've just been insulted by your wife. She says I'm loaded. Well, aren't you? That has nothing to do with it. Hey, hey, take it easy. That's my best gen. Dear friends, when I die... I don't want to see any full bottles around. That's not funny. It wasn't meant to be. It was meant to be a comment on the short, unhappy life of Paul Carson. Come. Drink and be merry. Uh, For tomorrow... Oh, shut up, Paul. Sorry.
1: In Beaumont's story, it's Ritchie who opens the door, and it goes like this. Mr. Ritchie opened the door. Max, what the devil are you doing up at this hour? A large man, well built, in his forties, walked in, smiling. I could ask you the same question, he said, flinging his hat and scarf in the direction of a chair, but I am far too thoughtful and considerate. They went back into the living room. Mrs. Ritchie looked up, frowned. Oh swell, she said. Dandy. All we need now is a bridge four. Ruth's just terribly upset, Mr. Ritchie said. Well, the large man said. It's nice to see unanimity in this house for once anyway. Hi, Ruth. He walked over to the bar and found the martini mix and drained the jar's contents into a glass. Then he drained the glass. Hey, take it easy. Max Kaplan turned to face his hosts. He looked quite a bit older than usual. The grin wasn't boyish now. Dear folkses," he said, when I die, I don't want to see any full bottles around. You can buy this story today in the collection Perchance to Dream, which is a collection of Beaumont short stories. But I am going to speak about it and there will be spoilers, so if you do want to read that short story yourself. Maybe skip forward about five minutes and you should be clear. I did contemplate reading the story on the show, but I'm not entirely sure about its copyright status. And to be honest, as short stories go, it is very short. I've introduced it here instead of at the beginning, because as I said earlier, where this scene in Henry Ritchie's house starts is where the short story starts. There's no courtroom scene at the beginning. There's no Adam Grant sitting in a cell. There's nothing. Just the Paul Carson character who, in the story is called Max Kaplan, turning up at the Ritchie's house, drunk, and trying to convince Henry Ritchie to stop the execution of an unnamed person on death row. But one of the differences is that in the short story, while Max and Hank talk about this person, Their dialogue keeps getting interrupted by an unknown person or being. They don't actually hear it, but we the readers do. For example, take this exchange. Kaplan shook his head. Come on, Max, snap out of it. You act like you never listened to a lunatic before. People have been predicting the end of the world ever since year one. Sure, I know, you don't have to patronize me. It's just that, well, who is this particular lunatic anyway? We don't know any more about him than the day he was caught. Even the name we had to make up. Who is he? Where did he come from? What's his home? And then this kind of disembodied voice says, My home, a world of eternities, an eternity of worlds. I must destroy, hurt, kill before I wake, always. And then once more I must sleep, always always and then the conversation continues it goes look there's a hundred vagrants in every city just like our boy no friends no relatives it means nothing so that happens a few times throughout the story so it's taken on quite a different form from the television version already in this version we don't actually see the prison we're never there there is no adam grant it's an unnamed person on death row for murder and rape. So like I said earlier, spoiler alert, because I'm gonna tell you the ending because it is so different. It ends up that Kaplan and Ritchie aren't part of the dream of a death row inmate, but part of the dream of something quite different. It ends like this. The clock began to strike. Henry Ritchie and Max Kaplan stood very still. He uncoiled. The dry pop of hardened joints jabbed wakefulness into him. And finally, the 20-foot-length shell lay straight upon the steaming rocks. He opened his eyes. All of them, one by one. Across the bubbling pools far away, past the white stone geysers, he could see them coming. Many of them swiftly giant slithering things with many arms and many legs. He tried to move. But rock grew over him and he could not move. By looking around he could see the cliff's edge and he remembered the thousand bottomless pits below. Gradually the rest formed and he remembered all. He turned to the largest creature. Did you tell them? He knew this would be a horrible punishment. Worse than the last. The burning. Far worse. Fingers began to unhinge the thick shell, peel it from him Leaving the viscous white tenderness bare to the heat and pain. Tell them, make them understand, this is only a dream I'm having. They took the prisoner to the precipice, lingering a moment to give him a view of the dizziness and the sucking things far below. Then nervous hands pressed him forward into space. He did not wake for a long time. I don't mind saying that I think the Twilight Zone version is a much better use of this concept. The short story is just that, a really short story. But the fact that it's an alien's dream rather than a human's dream, it's fine, but it's not as relatable. Not as intriguing. We don't really get time to be intrigued because it is so short. As we've seen before with things like the story of Dust good writers can often recognize when they can use something from their own stories to better effect. And I think that's what Charles Beaumont did here by reusing that in the Twilight Zone. So back in our episode, Paul convinces Hank to go and speak with Adam Grant in prison. And at this point, Grant is starting to point out to one of the other inmates, things that are about to happen. Like the district attorney coming to the prison But it's not the other inmates who he needs to convince, it's the DA himself.
3: You don't seem surprised to see me. I'm not. You always come. I mean, uh, the district attorney always comes, it isn't always you. Grant! Yes? I take it you're
4: sticking to this dream story of yours. That's right. It can't possibly do you any good now. You realise that.
3: I should. After all this time, every night I explain every night it's the same
4: all right explain again
3: well it's very simple when i die you die and everybody in this world dies because this world does not exist it's a dream of mine it's a nightmare can't you understand that
4: (sighs) no grant i can't understand it not because it's a new idea i can't understand it or accept it because It doesn't make any kind of logical
2: sense. But it does. It's the only thing that does make logical sense. You take you, for instance. Do you think you'd be visiting a man that was just about to be executed in real life? Of course not. They wouldn't allow you in here.
3: Or you take me. You don't know any more about me now than you did when this thing started. I'm a stranger.
4: There are a hundred vagrants in every town without names, without history. Stop that!
1: I love this scene. I think the two of these actors just play off each other so well. That they really just crackle, and Dennis Weaver is one of those actors that I almost feel like I don't need to give you a bio on because you already know. I don't think there's a person listening to this who won't know him from something. The span of his career was such that he straddles more than one era of entertainment and is quite prominent in all of them with parts in successful shows that he was in for some time, in each different era. So everyone will have an entry point with Dennis Weaver. For me, it was, of all things, reruns of Gentle Ben in the 80s. For others, it'll be Gunsmoke or MacLeod, or perhaps the Orson Welles film Touch of Evil or Spielberg's Duel. As an actor, I hold him in quite high regard, but especially for his performance here, His twitchy, bordering on insane performance is so magnetic that I think other people come off better by sharing their scenes with him. He raises this whole thing and makes it believable. Stuart T. Stanyard also interviewed Dennis Weaver for his book. And unfortunately, Weaver said he never actually got to meet Rod Serling on set. But then Stanyard asks him, what stands out most for you in the making of your episode Shadow Play?" And he says, well, what excited me about the script was dealing with the dream concept, that life is a dream. That's also very much part of Eastern philosophy, that we're living in a dream and they compare it to a lot of our dreams at night. When we dream at night, it's totally real to us. Nobody can tell you it's not real until we wake up and then we say, Oh, that was a dream, and that wasn't reality at all. But when we're living through it, dreaming it, it is terribly real, and sometimes it can be absolutely frightening. Characters can change very quickly, and it's just an incredible experience. But we feel that it's real, that's the point. And that was the point of this, shadow play, which I felt dealt with that subject matter very interestingly.
4: All right, now answer me this. You're scared now. Why? Why are you scared? You've got to wake up sometime, even if you're electrocuted, so why don't you just sit back and enjoy it?
2: <laughs> enjoy it.
3: Let me tell you something. Mr. Ritchie, how, how soundly do you sleep?
4: What's that got you? Well, I mean you'll dream, don't you? Certainly, sometimes.
2: Well, haven't you ever been hurt in one of those dreams? Haven't you ever fallen out of a window or or been drowned or tortured? You have! Well, don't you remember how real it had seemed? Remember how you woke up screaming? Well, let me ask you something, Mr. Ritchie. How do you like to wake up screaming every night? That's what I do. Because I dream the same dream night after night after night. It's this one! It changes a little bit, the people get twisted around, but it's the same
1: dream! What I latch onto in that speech that Dennis Weaver just gave is... that it suggests that he does wake up, because you can view this episode as a kind of loop, as if he's trapped in a dream. But I don't think that's the point. This isn't him sleeping for an eternity with this dream on an endless loop. As he says, he wakes up every night screaming at the point where he gets electrocuted. Now the episode doesn't show this because I think to do that would be a mistake to break the spell of this sort of dream on a loop. And when the episode opens with the darkness, it's almost like Dennis Weaver has fell asleep. The darkness sort of drifts away and he's left there in the courtroom, slightly confused he's not quite paying attention because he's still adjusting to that dreamlike state, then all of a sudden it starts to dawn on him that he's in the same dream again. So he does go to bed. He does have a life in the daytime. We don't see it, but it's there. And every night when he goes to bed, he has that dream. Now back in the episode, we're treated to a quite unusual little cliffhanger.
2: Let me live, and I'll keep you alive. I'll dream you every night, just like this. Wait a minute! I'll prove it to you. Your wife, she has a steak cooking for you. Go home, look in the oven. It'll be something else. Please!
4: Well? What's wrong, Hank? That's a roast.
1: What about Hank? What about it? You know, good on Harry Tans for pulling that line off. It always kind of amuses me. I can't recall a time in television history before where the pulling of a roast out of an oven is a kind of dun 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 moment. So good on him for being able to pull that line off, because it might have seemed slightly silly, but this is actually the first true evidence that we see that Grant is right. Because there's been a few little tricks earlier on with the mimicking of people talking and that kind of thing, but this is now actual physical evidence. So while Paul and Hank smoke some more cigarettes at Hank's house, Grant is prepared for the electric chair at the prison, and a priest comes to visit, and the legs of his trousers are cut According to Martin Grahams Jr., there was actually a scene film that took it that little bit further. Not just slitting his trousers, but actually shaving his head, preparing him for the electric chair. Maybe they just thought that was a step too far. Now, Paul convinces Hank to stop the execution based on Grant's mental state. But that's almost like a little get-out for them, because they can't quite admit to anyone else that they suspect he's actually dreaming this whole thing. They've got to have some sort of real world solution, so they settle on him being insane. Even if the dream stuff isn't true, he believes it's true, so he mustn't be well. Now, as Hank makes the call to the prison to stop the execution, there's this beautiful shadowy shot of Grant sitting down in the electric chair, just about to be strapped in. There's some real tension here, and the hood is pulled down over Grant's head, as Hank makes the call. But the switch still gets pulled, and as it does, everyone in Hank's house blinks out of existence.
4: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honour. And what is the verdict? Your Honour, we find the defendant, Adam Grant, guilty of murder in the first degree.
1: So we're back where we started but this time the faces are the same but the roles are different. It's just as Grant said it would be. He's dreaming people into parts in this shadow play. So before we sum up I'd just like to mention a couple of things. I've already mentioned that this was adapted from a Charles Beaumont short story. Then there was shadow play and I think it's kind of fitting that the story has been made twice more again different people playing different parts now i don't mention twilight zone radio every time because like i've said in the past pretty much every twilight zone has a twilight zone radio counterpart so there's not much point in mentioning them each time but i just like the idea of focusing on that iconic speech that adam grant gives Now the person who plays Grant in the Twilight Zone radio version is Ernie Hudson of Ghostbusters fame. I won't really go into it too much. If you like Shadowplay and you like the Twilight Zone and you like Twilight Zone radio, chances are you will like this version. But there are a couple of odd choices in it. Adam Grant is a lot less twitchy and we actually spend a bit more time with him before he's sentenced and he's very calm, almost good-humoured. Then all of a sudden, when he's found guilty, he freaks out, like Dennis Weaver does in the show. So it doesn't quite make sense that he's so calm beforehand, and he's saying things which suggest that he knows what's coming, because obviously it's happened to him so many times. But then he freaks out when he gets sentenced, you know? And any Hudson's performance is... Kind of like that. He's a lot more laid-back in his delivery of the lines. I'll tell you what it's like.
5: Yeah? Yeah. They come for you a few minutes early. That's so they can cut your trouser legs. They even shave your head at least part way. Then they open your cell. You walk out and down the cell block to a hall past two great doors at the end. Seventy-eight steps exactly to the final door painted green. It's got a little glass pane with chicken wire, but you can't see anything on the other side. There's a guard who opens the door for you. And you go into a room. It's tan, it's all tan. There's nothing in it except the chair. It's made out of wood and it's big. So it feels like a chair you used to sit in when you were a kid. Hard and solid and not very comfortable. Cut it out. They strap your arm and legs with thick buckles, and then they attach the electrodes. It's funny. They always feel cold to the touch at first. Man, talk like you've been through it already. Then they drop the mask over your head. It's musty. It smells like an old sofa. And then you wait. Every muscle tense straining, any second, any second, then you can almost hear it through the wall. They pull the switch.
1: But before Twilight Zone radio, there was of course the 80s Twilight Zone, which featured a remake of Shadowplay, starring Peter Coyote. Do you wanna know what it's like, Jimmy?
6: You walk out your cell, through that door down at the end there you walk down a long hall and it's dark and it's dirty and it's dimly lit you come to a door it's not the same door that the witnesses come through this one's green painted dark green and a guard opens it for you it leads to the stairs you climb the stairs they're old and wood and wood they creak under every step. And there's another door up at the top there. It's metal. Another guard opens it. He knows you're coming. They all know you're coming. You step out onto the hanging balcony. And there's a sheet that goes from the floor of the hanging balcony down to the floor of the room. And it's lit from behind. and That's so that the uh, spectators... You can only see the silhouette of the man when he drops. And the rope breaks his neck. You step out on the trap. The warden's there and he asks if you got any last words. And He has to, that's the law. And the uh, hangman ties your hands behind your back. And he binds your feet. He slips his hood over your head.
2: Listen to him, Blast. Listen to him.
6: Oh, the hood is uh, musty. It always reminds me of an old couch.
2: Shut up, Grant.
6: And finally, he puts the noose around your neck. Slowly and real carefully, he just adjusts the knot up behind your ear. <gasps> And then the hangman nods at the warden and then the warden nods at the assistant warden and then the assistant warden he flicks a switch and the little room off the hanging room a red light comes on and there's three guards there standing before three buttons they all push him at the same time one of those buttons releases the trap Floor falls out from under you.
1: You know what? I just can't remember what happens next. I've gone on record before many times saying I don't mind remakes. In fact, I like to see new takes on things, so I'm quite open to this. But ultimately, this is the same episode with a few tweaks here and there throughout. The main difference being that instead of the electric chair being used as a method of execution this time it's hanging at this point there had only been one hanging in the united states since 1965 and there would only actually be two more after that one the latest being in 1996. when i think of execution in the united states it's usually the electric chair that comes to mind for me because It's such a potent image, even more so, than the gallows. But the thing is, this is a dream, so anything can come into play. So because it is the same story, pretty much, with a lot of the same lines, unless you really mess it up, it it can't really be a bad thing. And I don't think it is. It's probably one of the better 80s Twilight zones. But it is just missing that certain something. The original has this slightly artificial quality to it. As Grant says, it looks a certain way because he dreams it a certain way. He hasn't actually seen a death house, so he imagines what he thinks it would look like. The courtroom in the beginning even looks artificial. There's a kind of impressionistic quality to it. Not excessively, but just enough to say that something's not quite right. But in the 80s show, The Courtroom looks like a courtroom in an 80s TV show. And I think it loses its dreamlike quality and goes from this wonderful mix of story and timeless visuals to a good story told pretty well. But back to the original. As we know, George Clayton Johnson was a good friend of Charles Beaumont. And he said, You know what I think is the best show? the one that has for me the greatest power it's the one with dennis weaver that beaumont wrote and you know catch me on a certain day and i might just agree with him in the closing narration rod serling throws it out there that is our existence really how we think it is yes we exist but do we exist as part of someone else's dream or nightmare and i found that really interesting because He doesn't focus on this recurring dream. It's almost as if he's not focused on Dennis Weaver's experience because he's the linchpin. He's the kind of one who's dreaming this whole thing. He's saying, what if you're Hank or Paul? What if you're part of someone else's dream? What if one day you put a steak in the oven and pull out a roast? So he's focusing on a slightly different aspect, which I think is a really interesting choice but let's bring it back down to earth a little. When I was putting together this show I thought that I would do a little research on what dreams actually are, why we do it and there's a wealth of information out there and I could probably fill a hundred shows with it. The conclusions people draw often depend on who they are and what their approach is. A neuroscientist is interested in dream production and organization, while someone who approaches them with a psychoanalytic approach is more concerned with what they mean. Now, a common scientific theory is that dreams are there as a kind of defragmentation for the brain, organizing memories and processing what's occurred during the day. Then there are those who approach them with a more spiritual eye, And I came across many websites that either attributed them to God or spirits from the other side communicating with us. So it all depends on who you are and even the ones who have a more definitive scientific approach, there's still that element of, well, do we really know or is this just our best kind of guess? So it's a part of humanity that is beyond our control and beyond our understanding which makes it perfect material for the Twilight Zone because that's where it exists, between science and superstition. And I think Shadowplay play might just be the purest example of this aspect of the Twilight Zone. I've said many times the Twilight Zone either punishes you, helps you, or acts in a way that is beyond our understanding. And this is just that. We've seen a man reliving the same thing over and over again in Twilight Zone and Judgment Night. But that Rod Sailing penned episode had a very specific moral centre. And that too was also directed by John Bram. Now the Lancer character relived the same day because he was in some kind of purgatory being punished for what he'd done during the war. But Adam Grant hasn't done anything wrong that we know of, I don't think he's here to be punished. So again, the why of this whole thing is just beyond our understanding, just like dreams. What if there is a point to dreams, but we just don't understand it? What if someone or something is controlling them, but in Adam Grant's case, they just forgot to change the record? I recall coming to a certain point in Season 2 and asking myself, are there any heavy hitters left? Those mighty Twilight tones that really stand up. I'm glad to say the answer is yes. As Twilight tones go, I can't fault this one. From its perfect opening, the twitchy performance by Dennis Weaver, and his absolute commitment to the story, speaking Charles Beaumont's words and being directed, by John Brahm. This is Brahm's seventh Twilight Zone and when we look back at what he's directed before, I have to hold the first season episode Mirror Image up with Shadowplay as two of the finest examples of something strange happening to someone and we just don't know why. And then there's that closing scene where we watch Adam Grant start to freak out in the court again. And we only see him but we don't hear him because Rod Sailing's closing narration takes over and the inevitability of this happening again and again comes crashing down on us. For me, this isn't just a heavy hitter. Shadowplay can hold its head high as being just as good as the best the Twilight Zone has to offer. This is as perfect as the Twilight Zone gets.
0: We know that a dream can be real. But who ever thought that reality could be a dream? We exist, of course, but but how? In what way? As we believe, as flesh and blood human beings? Or are we simply parts of someone's feverish, complicated nightmare? Think about it. And then ask yourself, do you live here, in this country, in this world, or do you live instead in the twilight zone?
1: Let's have a read of some listener emails in, submitted for your approval. I had an email from Adam Prue and he says Hi Tom, I can't say enough about how much I enjoy the Twilight Zone podcast. I work the Graveyard Shift at a nuclear lab in Florida and I really enjoy listening on my headphones as I work. The show takes on a special quality when I'm listening at 3am as the rest of the world sleeps. Your mix of music, effects and clips adds to the atmosphere perfectly and captures the feeling of watching the episodes for the first time. The podcast has caused me to go back and revisit some of the episodes that I had only seen once or twice and gain a new appreciation for them. For example, after listening to the podcast, I started looking critically at the episode Nick of Time. I had always considered this one of the less impactful, but after the podcast led me to rewatch it, I had a moment of clarity and I realized this episode was for anyone trapped in a situation with nothing holding them prisoner except their own mind i think most people have something in their lives where they're free to change anytime they choose to but like william shatner are trapped by their own irrational fears i could go on forever talking twilight zone but this is just one example that came to mind thanks again for all the work you do and keep it up adam well thank you adam and you know i always like to hear when people listen to the show, when they're working the graveyard shift. Kind of what I made it for, and uh, so thank you, Adam, and thank you for sending in your thoughts. I had an email from Nick, and he said, Tom, I just wanted to say that I really enjoy your podcast, and I just listened to your review of The Silence, which was excellent, especially with the extra information about the actors you gleaned. I wanted to touch upon the episode, but I'm glad I waited since I am really happy you're reviewing Shadowplay. The reason is, it is the only episode of the original Twilight Zone, which I think the 80s remake is better. I just think that Peter Coyote did a better job than the original protagonist, unlike the remake of that episode with the mannequin, sorry, I forgot the name, or the 2000s remake of Eye of the Beholder. I think you're talking about the after hours, if I'm not mistaken. I remember after watching the episode, I wanted to quote the part where he says, you're not real, you're just figments of my imagination. After look, my question is, after looking at it, it seems the protagonist is in a coma or in some sort of near death state because I don't believe he's having the same dream over again. Anyway, not to be long, keep up the good work, Nick. Well, thank you, Nick, I appreciate that. Bit of a controversial opinion there, but that's fine. Everyone enjoys what they enjoy, so that's great. Now, I've had an email from Al, and it's quite a long one, but I do like to read other people's Twilight Zone experiences, you know? It kind of interests me how other people get into the show, that kind of thing. And Al sent this over, he said, Dear Tom, I've been meaning to write to you for some time. A couple of years ago, I discovered your Twilight Zone podcast. I went through both your and Luke's shows very quickly. But once I caught up, I then lost track. I'm not a podcast listener generally, so it fell off my radar. Last week though, in looking for things to take my mind off the very Twilight Zone event of the election of Donald Trump, I thought of you again, took a look, and found that I'm way behind again. I've just listened to your review of The Howling Man, and I thought I would drop your line about my first exposure to the Twilight Zone something I'd intended to do when I was first listening to your show. I was born in the late 1950s, just a bit too late to see TZ when it was originally on. Instead I soaked them all up in repeats in the mid to late 1960s. There was a local television station that showed them Monday through Friday in the afternoons. I would get home from school, perhaps play outside a bit and then run in to watch the show. I remember being knocked between the eyes by To Serve Man, and will the real Martian please stand up? And by stop over in a quiet town, I know that last one is low on most people's lists, but to a child it was mind blowing. Inevitably, there were episodes I saw over and over and over, usually the weaker ones, of course. Doesn't it always seem to work that way? From Agnes with Love, Come Wander With Me, and Black Leather Jackets. I thought I had seen every episode until, as a teenager, I ended up in a conversation with friends, in which we recounted our favourite episodes, and gave away the endings. That's how I learned about a stop at Willoughby and the Silence, and that's how those episodes were spoiled for me, but none of us had any idea we were still missing more episodes. That brings me back to 1963 when TZ was still on, and to the first time I ever saw any Twilight Zone. I was five years old and my dad and I were going to have a sleepover, instead of being in our usual beds in our usual rooms. We retired to the basement after dinner and pulled out the hide-a-bed from the sofa. It was boys only, which meant the two of us. We had snacks and played games and were watching TV. I have very secure memories of that part of the evening. Very safe, very protected and even though I wasn't in my usual bed. At some point I fell asleep. It wasn't very late, but I wasn't very old and at some point I woke up and looked around to see What was what? I saw that my dad was still awake, he was stretched out, his back up against the couch, and his legs stretched out on the bed. He looked very relaxed, one crooked arm behind his head, smoking a cigarette and watching TV. I turned to see what he was watching and I saw something that terrified me. A man was running in the woods. He emerged on a road and was almost struck by a car. He was unhurt, but noticed that a cut had formed in his wrist, even though there was no blood. He reached over and pulled the skin back to show electronic components underneath. This was enough for me. Just the peeling back of the skin was enough to terrify me, Never mind the mechanical parts. I ducked my head under the covers and went back to sleep. But I also remember noticing my dad remained calm. This was an important childhood moment in which I marveled over how brave my dad must be to watch that moment without flinching. Somehow I knew it was a twilight zone. Maybe I knew the TV schedule even at that young age. Maybe I heard the Twilight Zone theme while I was half asleep. But I never saw the episode in all of my 60s teasy watching. Whenever I got into conversations about the show like the ones where Willoughby and The Silence was spoiled. I would describe the scene and ask if anyone had seen it. No one ever had. It got to the point where I wondered if it had been another early 60s anthology show. Or if I'd invented the whole thing altogether. Then sometime in the 1980s, the word went out that the hour-long Twilight Zones were going to be broadcast. Shows that hadn't been seen since the early 60s. I was reading the Twilight Zone magazine at the time with the monthly show-by-show guide by Mark Scott Zichri, the skeleton of what became his TZ companion. It was my favorite part of the magazine and highly anticipated each month because I didn't know the show's structure at that time what season each show came from and what the order of the shows were broadcast. And the guide was teaching me, but I don't think the guide had gotten to the fourth season yet and I'm pretty sure that when the hour-long broadcasts were announced I didn't know that hour-long Twilight Zones even existed. When the first one was shown, I was right there in front of my TV set and I wasn't impressed. You see, when they finally showed those hour-long shows they didn't show them in any particular order. And the, first one, and the first one they showed was the new exhibit, then they showed the 30 Fathom Grave, I believe, and I was just starting to wonder if any of these hour-long shows were worth watching, until they showed Jess Bell and Death Ship, and I realised that there were some great hour-long shows after all. And somewhere in there, about the middle of the run, they showed in his image, and I started to get this creepy feeling that there was something familiar about it. Still, it wasn't until I hit the scene I remembered from childhood that I was sure I hadn't made it up after all and it brought back the same fear I had as a child. In fact, it has permanently tied me to those childhood feelings of fear but also the comfort and security I had watching my dad watching the show. Every time I watch that show, I experience all of that again. And I'll on with some more Twilight's own memories there but I just wanted to read that because I thought it was a nice little story about how We all have our own memories of the Twilight Zone, and you know, one of Al's kind of remained lost all that time, but he, he found it again and uh, you know, had that special connection to his dad. So, thank you very much, Al, for getting in touch. Okay, a couple of iTunes reviews I want to say thank you for CEC2 left a very kind review, also, Obsessive Viewer Anthology Pods left a review. Thank you very much. And a very touching review by D Aylinger which I uh, I was really touched by, so thank you very much. And if anyone else has the time to leave an iTunes review, I would really appreciate it. Now, this is going to be the last show of 2016, so I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for spending time listening to the Twilight Zone podcast. I like to think there's been a few more this year than there was the year before, I've not done too badly, and hopefully that will improve as time goes on, but so many people stick with me through thick and thin, so I appreciate that. I have two feature-length Twilight Zone podcast episodes planned for next year, which, depending on when I get them done, I think will could really be something quite special that I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing, and I'm sort of chipping away at those in the background. so. Hopefully I'll have more word on those soon. As always, at the end of the year, I'm not going to speak to you again now until 2017, but 25th of December, it is Christmas Day, but it's also Rod Sailing's birthday, so I hope you'll join me in raising a glass to the great man, and join me in 2017 when we'll talk about the mind and the matter. So, happy birthday, Rod. Merry Christmas to you. And I wish you all a happy new year